0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians 2. If you notice, this is not my standard tone of voice. Hopefully, it at least remains this one uh, as we go on. As you can see uh, from the reading, Paul is still wrestling with the Judaizers. If you remember from our previous two uh, sermons in Galatians that There's a sect of Jews that want to come into the church and want to say that the Gentiles must obey the law to become saved, must obey the law to be one of God's uh, children. And Paul has continued to strive against these Judaizers. He's continued to preach the gospel of the grace of God through the death of Christ. But um, as is normal the loud minority is continuing to get louder. And so Paul decides, not because he's not sure of his gospel, not because he thinks he needs correction, but because he doesn't want the church to be spoiled by the Judaizers. He doesn't want to run in vain and his work be brought to naught by people who would come in. He decides, by, by the uh, impulse of Christ, to go to Jerusalem, and we have what we call the Jerusalem Council. So what we hope to do this morning is look again. What is the gospel that Paul preached? Why is it so revolutionary to, as compared to other religions? Why is the gospel of grace something that people still to this day uh, discount and try to place rules on or try to misinterpret in, in various ways? And what is the evidence that we see here in Galatians 2 of a person who has been transformed? And how will we know when we ourselves are in that place, when we're not relying on the law, when we're not relying on just a cheap grace that allows us to do whatever we want, but we have Christ in our hearts? So let's read Galatians 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years... "...added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when Cephas, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship." To Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to them circ- to the circumcised only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do shall we pray father thank you for your word thank you for your truth that is revealed there father this morning may we open our hearts may your word speak to us may we seek to know you in seeking to understand Your Word. Father, help me to be a transmission of Your truth and, and not of my own. May we all um, listen and learn from Your Word. We pray this through Christ. <clears throat> As noted before, for 14 years now Paul has been laboring in, in what is modern-day Turkey among the churches and a church is growing. And as we've seen, again, the Jews are coming in and attempting to make things rough for Paul. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he sits down with the disciples. And he proclaims to them the gospel that he's preaching. Some of them privately and some of them publicly. It seems his major discussions were probably with those he, he seems to call them influential but uh, the, the leaders of the churches whom he would have been talking with. And again, not because he wasn't sure of his gospel, but because he wanted authority to take back and to go to the Jews that are there and say, no, you don't come from Jerusalem. You do not represent the apostles in Jerusalem. You don't represent Christianity. And he's, he's wanting to make that case because I'm certain that those men were saying, well, we're from Jerusalem, that makes us a better apostle. He's hoping to appeal to those apostles to gain uh, strength in his argument. One of the things that's important for us to understand is that the apostles and Paul preach the same gospel. Um, And you may say, well, that should be assumed. Um, An exercise for you to do is to uh, do a an online search for the gospel Paul preached, and you will find much disagreement about Paul. You will have it from both sides of the theological spectrum. The theological liberals of our day say that Jesus is simply a crusader for human human rights, for activism and social justice. And those are the ways a Christian should interact in the world. You know, this whole atonement thing, this whole... Uh, justification that's real, that was paul 's thing it wasn 't the true gospel and they 'll attempt to make that argument, but on the other side, you will have mostly from still from from Jewish sources the idea that that the law still exists that we are still bound by the law that Paul again made up this thing to throw away the law and it 's not the true gospel so so we must be Be strong in our belief that Paul's gospel and the apostles' gospel and Jesus' gospel were the same. Um, That's the the separation that people will attempt to make. They're going to claim that, um, again, Jesus didn't set aside or fulfill the law, um, and that Paul's ideas of atonement are in error. Both of them... In a, in a way, must deny that Christ was the Lamb of God as declared by John the Baptist in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the understanding we must have of who Christ is. He's not simply a historical figure meant to be a role model. He is the Lamb of God. <clears throat> it's also important to notice that Paul has Barnabas with him. Barnabas has been his traveling companion, has been his fellow preacher of the Word of God. And it's by Barnabas' witness that, that Paul's witness is, um, is built up. Barnabas stands as a witness to lives changed by the preaching of the gospel and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing if I simply walked in and said something happened, and it's another thing if there was somebody with me and saw it as well. It brings a sense of, you know, he's not just a person on his own. And remember who Barnabas was. He was from the Church of Jerusalem. He was a Jew that they knew, and a person that they trusted. And so um, his his, uh, story would add credence to what Paul was saying. Acts 13 and 14 are witnesses, as Paul is going around and preaching to these various churches, are witness to the gift of faith to the Gentiles. It's also key to note that they bring Titus along. Uh, Titus was an uncircumcised, pork-eating Greek dude. Uh, He was just a normal guy. He he didn't come from the long line of Jewish uh, people. He wasn't even a proselyte. He was a Greek guy. You know, and, and exactly what the Judaizers would have been saying needs to change. Um, but the thing that we see in Titus is that he was transformed by the gospel. And it was evident to all. It was so evident that no one cared if he was circumcised or not. The new Christ was in him by the transformation that occurred in his life. We see the members of the the Pharisee or the circumcision party um, that Paul refers to as false brothers. They began to argue, saying that Titus should be circumcised. But Paul is standing up and saying, we're not going to submit to them. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. And by saying that, he's also saying that a code of law cannot be enforced as necessary for salvation. Paul states that, that, that we would be in slavery to those laws, just as the Greeks would be in slavery to circumcision as, the, as a necessary step for salvation. And in contrast to that, we would not be free in Christ. And here again, as before, we have the law and freedom by grace sort of butting heads. And this is kind of the thing we do. We... we Place one on one end and one on the other end, and, and we kind of separate them and try to shoot for the middle, is normally our goal. <clears throat> and this uh, butting of heads of these two things has continued on for centuries, ever since this conference took place in Jerusalem. And hopefully this morning we can let them meet again and, and bring some clarity to Paul's gospel. In verse 5, he repeats his firm conviction to preserve. The true gospel of grace and freedom in Christ. And we share that same conviction today. As we studied in Galatians 1, Paul, or Paul presents the gospel as the fact that we are set apart into salvation by the grace of God. It's not due to a work of our hand. Grace is not that salvation is simply available, but it is made effectual in those that are called and who believe. All have sinned and come short. We're all in the place that we need the gospel. And the grace is the answer to our inability to fulfill the requirements of the law. The law is the moral holiness demanded by God from humanity. So grace is a response to our inability. But the law is still representative of God's holiness because He is holy. The law is not defined by any person or church or denomination or any other group any code of conduct or regulation um, is not the law. The law is based in God. The specific law that Paul refers to is the Torah which in our Bibles would be the the first five books and they lay out the way that God wanted His chosen people to live. By the time of Christ the Jews had developed a very defined interpretation of the Torah and the obedience to that law was ingrained in all Jews. In his study, it was likely that Paul not only studied the Torah, but most likely memorized it. Um, I'm sure we've all memorized some scripture, but uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus is pretty rough memorization. He would have memorized all of them. <coughs> the law revealed in the Torah was God's words, it wasn't simply Moses' uh, attempt to do something, it was God's word to his chosen people. And its foundation was in the very holiness of God. Leviticus 11:44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. God's holiness is not tied to what he does, but in who he is. As creator and sustainer, his very act is holy. He doesn't question his ability to be holy as we may do. It is his nature and his being the term I am, I think, fully represents his holiness. So if, as Paul preached to the Gentiles and is here defending with great vigor that salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone, what about the law then? Does it bear any influence on our life? Is it relevant or necessary at all? Absolutely. The law is not forgotten. It is by the law it is by the law that we realize our inability to meet God in the state of holiness that He demands. When the law says, and this is the law interpreted by Christ, when the law says anger equals murder, then we must all agree that we're all murderers. If the law says that lust equals adultery, then every single one of us is an adulterer. Any sin of the mind or intent is a trespass upon God. It's not simply an action. We don't sin by action. We sin in our minds. So we must admit with that definition that we are hopeless. We have no remedy in ourselves. It is only by grace that we can even cry for mercy. And that cry is founded on the realization that we come up short. We're at the checkout counter and the credit card bounces. We have no answer. We're totally and completely unable to be holy as the Father is holy. And that's the only account that matters. The Bible says that no unholiness will enter heaven. And so we need the blood of Christ to cover our inability. The wrath of God due us for our sins is poured out on his Son, and his perfect righteousness is gifted to us. Romans 3, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atoning victim by His blood to be received by faith. When we plead in faith to Him for mercy, when we plead to be reconciled, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. So job number one of the law is to show us that we come up short and desperately need the Father's to work his plan of salvation in us. And in that revealing, the law acts as a diagnostic tool. Not too long ago, if you were going to work on a car, you would have went to a man who knew how to work on the car, and he would figure out what's wrong and fix it. Today's modern cars, we use something uh, called a scan tool. We plug it in, and we push the button, and it says this error code or that error code, and that points to what's wrong. But the scan tool doesn't fix the car. Scandal simply tells us what's wrong. And in the same way, the law can't fix us, but it does tell us what's wrong with us. It does tell us where the problems are. It doesn't offer a cure. It shows us where we come up short. And simply running again and again to compare ourselves to the law will never cure our inability. It will always tell us we're short. It requires the grace of God to fix the problem. But again, after the diagnostic and after grace, what becomes of the law? Can we simply forget it and rest alone in God's grace? Colossians 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When God who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So our life is hidden in Christ. After a person is truly converted... The diagnostic is clean. When the law scans us before God, we see Christ and His perfectness, and we are clean. There are no errors. If we are one of Christ's sheep, we are redeemed, and the scan is clear. And so for our status before God, we rest wholly on the grace and mercy of God through the death of Christ. But can we forget the law? Absolutely not. After being reconciled to God and saved by his grace, we begin the steps of the renewing of our minds. The law changes from being a diagnostic into the plan by which the nature of God is revealed to us. After all, the law is a representation of the holiness of God. Romans 2.23 says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Dishonoring the law is the same as dishonoring God himself. So we can't throw it away we must continue to seek it but again the law is not meant to restrain the law is not simply a bunch of walls or a fence to keep us where we belong but it is to show us the path to the greatest joy to joy unspeakable and seeking out and loving the law as king david we begin to find real lasting joy And if we think about that in terms of our everyday life, if we think about a person who um, is married and is committed to maintain a single God-honoring partner for, the, for their life, one partner. That's not restrictive. It's not God saying, I know you could have more fun if you slept around and did whatever you want. I know that would be better, but you know, this is what I want you to do. No, he's saying this is the best way to find the most joy. Not chase after something cheap, something fleeting, but the most joy, the greatest joy. And that's what the law reveals in us. Example of a person who is highly interested in buying a product. And I'm a salesperson, so I see that somebody's really interested, they want it, they act like they need it, and they do a lot of research, but then they never buy it. That person is is betraying themselves. They're seeking for something that, that is uh, in the end never comes to fruition. And a person who chases after the cheap joy will never find joy. To love God is to love his law, and to love the law is to love and seek to know the nature of God. It is in the pursuit of relationship with God that his law becomes glorious. It is no longer a begrudging. Okay, I'll I'll do it if you wish. But is it a joyful interaction with God Himself? Our love of God and pursuit of more knowledge will be sought (coughs) through His law. One way that we see this um, clearly shown, and I think an example we can all resonate with, is that of parents. And and I'd like to give two scenarios. Two parents and, and the way we normally view the law or view grace. Parent one gives no law. He's the proverbial grace guy. He doesn't want his kids to obey unless they want to. He allows them to disrespect disrespect him and treat him in degrading ways. He allows them to go anywhere they want, and he has no input on the people they call friends. This is as if he allows them to play on the road with no warnings or entreating about the cars that may come. And if anyone told you that that was love, you would disagree and you would be right because there's no love at all to place a person in danger without warning them for safety. This is the parent that most modern people suppose God to be when they say, God loves me and He wants me to be happy. And that happy is the freedom to do whatever pleases their fancy and fulfills their desires. I need freedom to be alive. Rules restrict my happiness. I can eat, drink, and inhale whatever and as much as I want because God wants me to be happy. And I need these pleasures to feel alive. I need to watch movies and have sensual music to feed my soul because it makes me feel alive. Because God loves me and wants me to be happy, you know, this is okay for me to pursue. But again, we would say that God is not loving somebody when He simply allows them to freely pursue what ends up in their own destruction. All we need to do is look at the many broken lives who pursued sin and it resulted in the rotting of their soul. But some of those may be on the edge. How about us? How many of us flock to social media every evening to get our relationship fixed when real friends and family are close by? How many men are enslaved to repeatedly abandoning their present or future wife for a fleeting 2D image on a computer screen? How many of us are enslaved to wanting the next thing? I've got to have the newest gadget, regardless of the fact that it's no longer the latest thing a week after you open it. This is bondage. And it's a pursuit of cheap joy. It's slavery. And no good loving God would want that for his children. Then we move to parent two. In his house, nothing happens without his permission. The rules are long and detailed. And the punishment is harsh and immediate. Never expresses a moment's amount of emotion. Children are to be seen and not heard and not seen is even better. The slightest inconvenience of the parent is bad news for the kids. And the kids, instead of reveling in the love of a parent and the care of their father, seethe and await the days of freedom from their parents and hopefully a part of his money. This is the supposed God of the legalist who sees God as the maker of the rules. Your responsibility is to follow the rules. And if you follow them, you will get to heaven. But tied up in this is a hyperventilation over the details. Is this right? Is, is this wrong? What if there's something I haven't made right? It's kind of a, where am I? It's, an un, it's, it's not the peaceable fruits of righteousness and a sure eternal destination. One is left to worry and hope for an unknown feature. And heaven, heaven is simply a better earth with streets of gold and a big mansion, and a bigger one if you were a better Christian than your neighbor. And those who are good at behavior modification simply lord it over those who are not and get lost in self-righteousness. And again I ask, is this a path a loving God would plan for his children? An unfeeling, unknowing future. Hopefully you can see that neither of these are the gospel of Christ, defined in here adherence to a code will enslave us to our own self-righteousness. And headlong seeking after earthly pleasure will ultimately snare us away from God. And if we think the gospel is found by simply striking a balance between them, we are still making the same mistake that they each make. Both propose a salvation in which God is not present. Paul's gospel, if that is that if a man will repent of his sin and believe in Christ, God Himself will commune with him and provide a path through life. Thy word is a lamp to my feet. He will reveal Himself, and in His law, the path toward ultimate joy. And so in the gospel, we do not hold out a pursuit of cheap pleasure, nor do we hold out a moral law to be kept, but we introduce Christ, the living Word, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the light, the Lamb who comes to take away our sins. And in the case of the law, we view it as the description of how God intended the world to work and a showcase of his character. And as Paul is arguing this to them, it appears he's won. It appears that they haven't made Titus submit. It appears that the influential apostles have agreed with Paul. But then it appears a little bit, if we look there in verse 6, he says, What they were makes no difference to me. And this is a, in, in my Bible is in, in parentheses. as kind of a little side note. Um, Paul simply saying, well, I don't really care if they're influential or not. I think we read him wrong if we see this as disregard. I believe him saying this is based on his firm belief that his salvation and the gospel he preached was a direct revelation from Christ. Paul was a Christian because Christ was revealed to his heart. He did not need to tie his Christianity to any one apostle or church. In the same way, we must be careful not to, pl- to place our faith in influential churches or the preachers of our day. In our church here, our brother Paul has been a great influence to us. But the moment we rest solely on his opinion and, and the doctrine that he preaches is the moment we take our eyes off Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. Brother Paul and any other leader is effective in Christian leadership. Only when through their words and actions, Christ is revealed as most glorious. A church is only to be attended if it holds up Christ as the only way to know God. No amount of rules and discipline can deliver a person holy, and no amount of discipleship, to another person will present us faultless before God. It is only when Christ is held out as the only solution for our sin and His Word, the revealing of our path to true and eternal joy. The transformation of a heart is only begun when Christ is treasured. And in that treasuring, His nature is imparted to us. What they saw in Titus was that God's nature had been revealed in him and that he was transformed into the image of Christ. Paul did not mean to disrespect the apostles, uh, but when Christ is near, we don't bring glory to the servant. We give glory to the master. We do see him later acknowledging the other apostles as pillars, but only because their pillar was the foundation of Christ. And that paradigm also applies to us. Only as we are found in Christ are we found holy. So how do we know where we are? How do we judge our position? If you're here today and you've done everything almost right, you've worn all the right clothes, you've read all the right books, and done everything in your ability to keep the law as you know it. And as you think on your life, you're you're pretty happy with it. As the rich young ruler, you state, this I have done since my youth. And Jesus says to you, as he said to him, sell all and come, follow me. He said that this because although he kept the law, he did not keep it out of treasuring God. He did it out of a necessity to save his own soul. Jesus says your righteousness is filthy in comparison to his, but he invites us to come and repent and live in him. And if you've come wanting more from life, wanting freedom, The world around you pulls you to accept its values. And the siren call of sin is loud in your ear. It's telling you that there's no fun or happiness in a church. It's telling you that Jesus doesn't promise any happiness. Why would you want to be a repressed Christian? Is what the world asks us. Why would you submit to the barriers to your happiness? When you can be whoever you want to be. You can go your own way. You can be your own judge. And no one else can judge you. After all, God wants you to be happy. Again, Jesus says, come, repent, and live in true joy. He doesn't ask you to come in a repressive way. He comes because He wants to build in you great joy. To live as He created you to live. Take my yoke, for it is easy. Take my joy, because it's eternal. Bask in my holiness, because it is perfect. (laughs) Seek my way, because it leads to everlasting life and everlasting joy. (coughs) Shall we pray?